by some conservative Christians to be satanic was badly damaged by an explosive device. One of the four granite panels on the Georgia Guidestones monument was reduced to rubble. The message on these Georgia Guidestones espouses the conservation of humanity and future generations. The guides are as follows, and this is exactly what it says on the stones. And I quote, maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Unite humanity with a living new language. Rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. Balance personal rights with social duties. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. End quote. And folks, I did not repeat that. That's exactly the way it is on the guys. So-called American Stonehenge also serves as a sundial and astronomical calendar. The bombing is under investigation. Around the sides of the capstone, a different message is written in four dead languages. Classical Greek, Sanskrit, Babylonian, cuneiform, and Egyptian hieroglyphics. The messages beseech, quote, let these be a guidestone to an age of reason, end quote. Hello there and welcome to episode 76 of Right Where You Are Sitting Now, the show for the website sittingnow.co.uk. I'm going to do this all up front. You can find us on Instagram at sittingnow. You can find us on Twitter at sittingnow, on YouTube, sittingnow, all one word. And we'd love to hear from you. Well, it's just me today, folks. Uh, It's been a while since I've done this, where it's just me on the mic. I can do whatever I want. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's amazing. No Mark or Ulysses Black here to... uh, to um you know distract me from my core message of um universal brotherhood and uh uh you know population control and um you know all the sort of things that i've been preaching over the years i'm sitting now <laughs> so anyway i normally would ask mark or uh, ulysses black who we are talking about today but i will tell you we're talking to a uh an old pal of the show today, uh, someone who was on the second, I believe, ever episode of the show, all the way back in 2007, I think it was, when we first started this podcast. You may be wondering to yourself, hang on, you started in 2007, but we're only on episode 76. That's right, we're very, very lazy at this website. But uh, no, also we started other podcasts, and this one kind of was always like a one I used to dip into, but now it's become my uh, my main show, and it's the I think it's the best one we've done so far. Oh, another thing before I introduce our guest, um, I'm sure by now, because I always record, we we always have episodes in the bank, as they say. So you know, we're often recording these a week or so before you hear them, and hopefully by now there should be a second podcast, um, which is another returning guest, uh, as it were. Uh, it's a show that we used to do. Um, that I'm really pleased is back. 
I'm not going to say it just in case it hasn't happened yet, but uh, let's just say it involves one Kim Monaghan. So old listeners of the show will uh, will know exactly what that kind of show is. But what we're going to do this time is what we used to do was when we had a um, bunch of different shows, we'd put them all down one one uh, pipe, as it were. So all the shows would come down, um, you know, the same. Or, or well, is it still an RSS feed? I assume it's. I don't know. It's all automated these days. It's brilliant. But anyway, it used to all come down one RSS feed, and people would complain that they'd want to hear the interview show, and or they'd want to hear CCN, or they'd want to hear uh, behind closed doors, and uh, you know, um, instead they just got kind of fire hose of shows. So we're not doing that this time. We're actually splitting them all into their own uh, avenues. Uh, we did the same with CCN when that briefly relaunched. Um, I don't know what happened to that actually. I have to get in contact with with Josh and find out because they were going full steam at one point, but they're not anymore. Anyway, I'm kind of waffling here. There's, I quite I quite like doing these shows on my own. I might do a few more of them. I become a bit like William Cooper, just go a bit mad, you know, on my own in Brighton, um, in my dark room. But anyway, yeah. So today we are talking to my good friend Raymond Wiley, um, because as you may have noticed recently in the news, someone blew up the Georgia Guidestones and. When you talk, you know, when when we touch on specialist subjects in this show, on this show, rather, uh, we we like to find the guy that wrote the book. And when it comes to uh, uh, the Georgia Guidestones, Raymond's the guy that wrote the book. He's also, you know, an old friend of ours. Um, we've done podcasts together. You know, Raymond's been in my house. We've, we know we uh, we know each other very well. Uh, so this should be fun. Um, so I don't really need a co-host for it because Raymond's kind of a co-host on this show anyway. Um, sort of thing he's been a co-host on the show we interviewed john rodson together i am waffling a lot i'm really sorry about this listeners but anyway let's let's cut over to the interview let's talk to raymond and let's see what happened to the georgia guidestones Raymond Wiley, good to hear your voice again and good to have you back on the show uh, but for our listeners Give us a brief biography of yourself. Oh my God, I'm just I'm just a poor boy, just a poor boy from the South. Uh, uh, when I say the South, I guess I like the, of the United States. Unfortunately, uh, for me, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Now I'm I, I'm uh, a broadcaster like you can. I'm a podcaster. I've been around since uh, at least 2005, making podcasts. Love doing it, and. Uh, Happened to write a book along the way, and the thing I wrote a book about got blown up by rednecks, and we're going to be talking about that today. It's great to be back on Sitting Now, my friend. They blew up my stones. Anyway, yeah. So. My precious stones. <laughs> so we should just we should do a little potted history, because we first, I mean, you're on episode two of Sitting Now, which I think we recorded in 2007. That's how. That's a long time ago now. <laughs> it's, it's long. That's been a minute. That was one of my very first like times I did a guest spot. Yeah, on yeah. some somebody else's show, and I was just, I'm sure I was just beaming with, you know, when you're in your twenties, like that's just such an ego boost. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I th- yeah. So, so at the time you I, were recording a show called Out There Radio, weren't you? Correct. Correct. Yeah. And it was uh, like, you know, I was a college radio disc jockey and I got the opportunity to do my own talk show. And it was I I wanted to do a show a lot or I kind of wanted to do a show in the vein of um, 
In Search Of or Unsolved Mysteries, which were TV shows that I'd enjoyed uh, as a child. And uh, with along with my friend Joe McFall, we created a show for WOG called Out There, later called Out There Radio. And um, yeah, and the rest is history. And I've been a D-list internet celebrity ever since. It's wonderful. It's best to be. It's best so, to be. You don't want to be in the limelight. It's too much pressure. It's, uh, you don't want to be recognized. No, exactly. No. Yeah, it's much better no, to be exactly. uh, undercover, underground. That's the uh, exactly. How can you? You can't be a proper observer. Yeah. You know, if everyone's observing you all the time. Exactly. So. Exactly. And after that, you then went on to work for the disinformation company. Correct. Yeah, disinformation books. Um, this is in the sort of uh, sort of post uh, Richard Metzger era of disinfo, when the company was largely focused on. Uh, producing documentary films and releasing documentary films in the sort of the DVD market, um, as well as a, a number of nonfiction uh, titles with people who I actually really kind of liked, Jim Morris, Graham Hancock, and a few others, people who, you know, I had encountered along the way making a show like Out There Radio. Um, and yeah, so that was a lot of fun. And I got to be a publishing company stooge for a while. What a fun job <laughs> that was. And, um, and then Ken, you got me, you, your, by your advice, I ended up going to grad school, uh, after dis after, uh, my gig with disinfo was up and after we had written the book, we're going to talk a little bit about today. Uh, I got to go to grad school there in, uh, Sussex, not too far from you. And I mean, you are 100% the reason I did that. Like oh, if I like your suggestion changed my life. So and that sent me off into a totally different direction and um, and all sorts of things have happened between here and there. I've made a couple of different podcast series, The Shadow of Ideas and most recently Retrophilia, which is a podcast series about the 1990s, which I'm sure we can talk about a little bit as well. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm a bit like uh, I can't remember the character, but you're like Pacino in um in the godfather you almost got out but i'm dragging you back in you're dragging me back in oh my god who would that be that would be uh i can't remember i can't remember. of course now that we're on the air i can't remember uh what is his name oh he's in oceans oceans 12 he's the bad guy yeah um, oh damn it i can't remember um but yeah Man, Godfather 3. Don't get me start talking about movies, Ken, because I'll start <laughs> complaining about Godfather 3. Oh, yeah, Godfather like 3. Should, I mean, we can, we can complain about Godfather 3. That's fine. Um, <laughs> they should have just, yeah. you know, stop at 2. Didn't you they? were totally ahead at the end of 2. You had a perfect movie. Just stop. I think they, you know? they just re-released it, didn't they, with a new, a new cut or something. There's a new version of it that came out recently. <laughs> it's like the Rocky Four thing, dude. Yeah, well, <laughs> Apocalypse Now. He loves re-releasing like, Redux versions, doesn't he, of things, Coppola. But, yeah. Oh, my God. I've seen four versions of Apocalypse Now. I'm so confused as to which one is which now. I love so. that film now. I used to hate that film. Now I love it. I don't know what happened. I think, you know, when you're young and you kind of, you're, you're being hip, so you deliberately hate everything that everyone likes. I think that was probably what happened with Apocalypse Now. It's like, it's rubbish. But then I watched it. Again. Your friends were so cool that yeah. the thing you deliberately didn't like was yeah. Apocalypse. Now think about that. Kid. Yeah, I know. Like you're, I know. you were in a pretty good environment if that's what you're <laughs> slagging on. Yeah, I was like, it's I, lo I was obsessed with that movie as a senior in high school. Would watch it every night on on a very early DVD drive on a CRT monitor, so it looked really good for 1998 or 1999 or whenever it was. I'd watch it every night. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and the DVD menu you'd be playing, it would be the helicopter going whoo, 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 back and forth across the, 
panning across the stereo. And uh, just like every night I'd wake up. I was obsessed with this movie. And I think what it is is because it's so beautiful. It's Storaro's cinematography to me that makes that film. I don't know. You're you're into cinematography. I actually met you? him recently. Uh, I went to this the, no shit the festival in Poland called Camera Image, and it's like it's like a sort of almost hidden nerdy cameraman's film festival where they have like a camera show as well. But um, uh, yeah, he was given he was presented an award by Mr. Polanski, and uh, then we all went to a dinner thing afterwards. And um, yeah, they were all there at the dinner. That's amazing. Yeah. He, can he speak English now? Because I don't think he was speaking he, English at all. He wasn't. During... He wasn't great at it. I mean, he, you know, he could uh, he, he could acknowledge you, <laughs> but he, <laughs> he, he was like, no. He was kind of easy. He was. No, I don't know. He was all right. I didn't really speak to him for very long. It was more like a sort of you know, shaking the hand of the master kind of thing. But it was. Uh, yeah. No. He's. You know. He seemed pleasant sure. enough. Polanski's very pleasant That's as well. Amazing. Although you know, Polanski's Polanski. But you were, uh, well, watch watch yourself, Ken. Watch <laughs> back. So. I do like. Uh, the ninth gate i think the ninth gate's very good uh, i i'm not the type that uh in most cases will throw out a, a great work of art because the artist that made it like did something that i am disgusted by yeah it's like separate the art from the artist kind of thing that's i, I did the same thing you see, I, I could never watch my favorite herzog films if if that was the case because of klaus kinski's uh daughter rape that would have been uh you know Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You so should, you should look teaching in. me a little film history here, Ken. Yeah, I yeah. Know about it is. No, but I mean, I love, love, love Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre, Wrath of God, and and uh, his version of Nosferatu as well. And it's like, yeah, it, it, you know, you just have to kind of, um, yeah, separate the art from the artist because you can't punish the whole yeah. crew and the director and everything if one actor. I don't know. I'm sure there are people that would uh, say otherwise, but at least the way I see it. You know. Well, I mean, it had to be pretty egregious. I think. I mean, there's a. I mean, there's a line, I suppose. But like, I don't know. Yeah, we we we've yet to find an artist that's uh, <laughs> become a mass murderer or anything. So that I know of. Uh, I um, maybe Bob Hoskins for doing that Mario Brothers film. I don't know. That was pretty egregious. Maybe we, he should be uh, oh. removed from history. You know. <laughs> If we, and again, I don't want to get us off on film show, but like, I saw Mona Lisa for the first time. And the Long Good Friday for the first time. Partially shot past it here year. in Brighton. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, there was. Yeah, I noticed. I did notice some of that was in Brighton. And uh, what, man, I just love Bob Hoskins. He's so good. Yeah, he's great. Especially, I love Mona Lisa. That's a good film. Anyway, we should really talk about some Guidestones, I think. Um, <laughs> I think so. I mean, it's not often, you, like I said earlier, it's not often you write a book about something and then somebody blows it up. Yeah, true. And we had to have you on to talk about this because, you know, A, we love having you on the show, and B, huh? it's, you know, it's what we do. Um, so you, the Georgia Guidestone, America's Most Mysterious Monument. We should also give a shout out to, uh, I believe now, Mrs. Katie Prime. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. She's uh, she's married with children now. Married with a child now. Yes, so she's uh, she's an adult now. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, we're all still children at heart. I think all of us that were sort of nerds in Athens around UGA back during those days. Me and me and Katie went to college together, and yeah, she has gone on to have a very successful career, and. Um, I don't know if she's written anything recently or published anything, but if I if I find out that she has, I'll I'll make sure to add it so you can like kind of link to it. 
So, what does she actually do um, now? She, is she like a lawyer or something? Or something like that, isn't it? Or some sort of. Uh, as I understand it, yes. Yes. Yeah, very fancy. So, just for a reference, what do uh, they call a lawyer? What do you call a lawyer in England? It's like a barrister, solicitor, solicitor. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. But I, mean, also, I sound like a I sound like a redneck the way I said that. You heard that? <laughs> so, the, so uh, which, just for reference, we should tell the audience that the reason we're referencing Katie is uh, that she's the co-author of uh, of uh, the Georgia Guidestones book with you. Um, correct, correct. Yeah. She, in fact, wrote the uh, the text of the book. Okay. And I was I I provided all the research, did all this, had to do all the interviews. That's been part of the deal all these years. Is I have to do all the interviews. Damn it! Oh, no, I'm kidding, Ken. But um, yeah, so I did all the research, got the book deal. I, if it was a movie, I'd be the producer, and she'd be the director. This is the way I see it. Um, but. We are co-authors, so and I got the, all the interviews for the research, got all the quotes, that sort of thing. So, so when you see that wonderful, wonderful prose in the book, that's Katie. That's all Katie. And it's a, it's a. I, I mean, I reread the book in its totality today. It's a, it reads. Easily. Doesn't take long. Yeah, it's a short one. It's an easy read, which is a, which is always a, you know, it's a good thing because we get some. Uh, myopic tomes here <laughs> so, 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 only imagine dude well well just you know just because the book is uh now published by red wheel wiser doesn't mean that it's it has to be a myopic tome no. you know what i mean just because now we don't get the onk on the side it's still got the disinfo logo mm -hmm. on the side of the book but it's technically published by that's, by wiser now that must so. be annoying I'd, I'd want the ank on the side <laughs> you'd want the ank yeah. well you don't want to you know i mean if if you want the myopic <laughs> long audience but if you want the track see what bothers me about this is since the 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 monument and you, I, i'm sure you the audience can kind of read between the lines here that it's been destroyed right mm. and it's kind of annoying for me because uh, on a purely selfish level, because it's like, well, you know, like a lot of people I would imagine would get the book before they would go out and visit the Godstones. And now there's nothing for them to go out and visit. Yeah. So and I think the people in the town of Elberton are kind of feeling the same way about it, where it's like, wow, our, our only tourist attraction in our tiny East Georgia town is gone yeah. now. And uh, we're going to find um, Raymond's going to reveal who the bummer was later in the episode. <laughs> oh my! Shut up, Jesus! Um, I wish I would have already called the GBI. This this will be funny to you, being from another country. You know, you have the FBI in yeah. in America, right? Yeah, sort yeah. of like the MI five, right? They'd be like MI five in um, in England, and but the different states have their own state police forces. Okay. And if you've seen that movie, The Departed, they talk about the stateies. Okay. That's mm -hmm. the state police. Okay. And, um, it, but in Georgia, they're called the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigations. And I would not want to mess with those folks. So whoever actually did destroy this monument, oh man, they have <laughs> really, they've really screwed the pooch. They better hope they don't get caught because they will be in, un, they'll put them under the jail. Because you, it's a bombing, dude. It's like a terrorist act almost. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah, I have my own theories. I, I I can sort of calculate in my mind who it is. Well, no, not who it is, but the kind of person it is. I think. But uh, I, we'll talk about that later. But, I uh, have speculations as well. I, I look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so let's talk about like 
because I mean they're often called um, Britain, uh, America's Stonehenge, aren't they? And but it, in a way, they're actually very different to Stonehenge. They, they just happen to both be, you know, rock structures essentially, don't they? But they're very, very different. They have very different histories. And uh, let's talk about that a little bit. So, where does uh, let's talk about R.C. Christian? I think he's the, he's the um, the uh, the creator, or at least the imaginer of the, the Guidestones. So let's let's start there and talk about him first and like how he approached the town about sure yeah yeah i mean we've been kind of beating around the bush about this right so in the in the very late 70s like 1979 um uh, picture yourself in the town of elberton georgia which is just a small rural community near the savannah river um it's not near to atlanta it would take you like an hour and a half to get to atlanta from there and the one big industry that this town has is they have granite quarries, okay? So this town is producing, for instance, a lot of the tombstones for different parts of the United States and the Southeast because there's readily available granite there. They take it out of the... I mean, you know, you've you've played civilization. You take it out of the ground, you refine it into something, and you sell it. Well, that was the industry there. So into this setting walks uh, some strange man who identifies himself as R.C. Christian. He goes to one of these big monument granite companies and says, oh, I want to commission this giant Stonehenge-looking monument, like 20 feet tall, weighs tons and tons, has all these weird inscriptions on it. And the people at the granite company think he's joking or it's like some kind of prank all right, and uh, so they send him to the the local bank, thinking, "Oh, well, he'll never go and get a loan for this. This is just a prank." The guy goes and gets financing in the town to have it done, and so then uh, this starts to. I think this the story is that then the the, the the this goes around the town a little bit, and the mayor gets a hold of this. And realizes, oh, wait, this could be really good for our town as sort of like a, a tourist attraction. So I think the mayor sort of lobbied the guy or the locals sort of lobbied the guy. Hey, like, you know, it would cost a lot of money to ship this thing a long way. Maybe you should just have it here in Elberton. So in 1980, they reveal the Georgia Guidestones on the side of Highway 77 there in Elberton, and they are, they look like Stonehenge a little bit. They look like, like a poor man's world wonder from Civ 6. So, like, if, if there was a world wonder, you could build in one turn and it <laughs> gave you like a plus one bonus to something, you know, and you can only build it at the end of the game. That's sort of like the Georgia Guidestones, just to use some video game parlance here. Like, it's built for a couple hundred thousand dollars by what seems to be an eccentric rich guy who then leaves behind not only a message written on the stones in many different languages, but a uh, sort of manifesto called Common Sense Renewed as well, which he widely disseminates in the years after the Georgia Guidestones are erected. But the dude remains anonymous. His his um, nom de plume was R.C. Christian. And he only told, if I remember rightly from the book, he only told 
the bank manager, wasn't it? Uh, the local bank manager was the only person. Is he still alive? The bank manager that knows his, his true identity? I, you know, there have been um, sort of other films and uh, docu- I think a documentary film that came out a few years ago. Uh, it was a sort of consp- more of a conspiratorial doc. And I think they approached the bank manager. So we actually may get around to that towards the end of the story here because there's some people believe that they've actually figured out who this guy was now. Oh. Of course, I'm just kind of spoiling the story. but um, So there you go. So we should talk about what's written on the stones because that's where, this, that's where a lot of the, uh, the later unrest comes from isn't it and potentially why they got blown up and you know as well so it's kind of i, I reckon we should just go from because they're they're kind of a mixed bag of like pretty intense stuff and then pretty nice like you know kitten cuddling yeah stuff, i would, I would yeah. say so i mean you can like if you want to pull it up on wikipedia or whatever as you're listening and just sort of read what the 10 different inscriptions are um and like you said some of them are pretty innocuous you know like Balance personal rights with social duties. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Um, But then other ones are sort of very particular to a sort of, uh, I don't know, like 1970s ecology, different subcultures from the mid-20th century. So you've got one that's like, uh, there's like, unite humanity with a living new language. Uh, and that so that's got to be like Esperan. What's it called? Esperanzo. Esperanto. Esperanto. I think. Yeah, yeah. Esperanto. So that's. I mean, if you think about the time these were put up, that that. But if you didn't know what Esperanto was, you wouldn't know no. what that was talking about. You know what I mean? And and so there's some context problems with the Georgia Guidestones, where some of them say some things where. Without any context, they, they, they creep people out. So the first one is the one that gets everybody. Maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. And then, of course, like the hackles on the, the, the hairs on the back of every redneck in the world's hair, head, you know, they, they rise, their hackles go up. Oh, my God, there's more. There's, I, I remember that day I was in school, they, that one day. They told me that there was like billions of people on the earth, and this says only 500 million. Ergo, the guy who built this wants to kill everybody. That's Alex, like you can see Alex Jones's face getting redder and redder with rage, can't you? Yeah, <laughs> he's, just, he's going crazy. <laughs> oh man, he's and his yeah, yeah, he's just gonna pop, dude. Yeah. And like again, it's a context thing. Like this monument was constructed. The whole reason this monument was constructed, if you like, uh, sort of read the different, like, the explanatory tablet. If you read the Common Sense Renewed, this the manifesto this guy put out. Like, it's clear that he is. It's the late 1970s, early 1980s. The guy is clearly concerned that most of the most civilization is about to be destroyed in a nuclear war, and. That's a that's a pretty uh, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, especially you know at the moment. I mean? Especially at the moment. I mean, yeah, yeah. given the context of the time. But I mean, I mean, he, he might even pop up again now. You know, he's like, shit, Russia's back at it again. We need to uh, get some more guidestones up quickly. You know, so oh, tell me about <laughs> it, man. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. So, um, 
so there was this context of people thinking that there was about to be a nuclear war and that, oh, well, when there's a nuclear war, billions of people are going to die. And so maybe it's best after that fact to just not build up the population quite so large again. Um, but I mean, that's not – see, without those con- – there's no, like, context clues. You know what I mean? Like, I always thought that the Georgia Guidestones should have had one of those roads – you know how they have those roadside markers? I don't know if you have them in the UK, but in the US we have these roadside markers, and they mark where some historic event happened. It might be something small, but it's marked on a little metal – sort of like a metal sign – yeah, we, we, we have sign. these things called blue plaques here and they're usually on buildings and it's like, you know, uh, I don't know, Oscar Wilde lived here once and, you know, we've literally just had exactly. one installed up the road for me. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have them, they tend to be on buildings here. And then I think maybe right. they have the odd one, on, you know, like a sign up somewhere on, on some roads, but generally they're on buildings. Exactly. So it, I, what I wish is that the state of Georgia had put up a roadside marker next to the Guidestones and it had said something like the Cold War. You know, they've always got some kind of cute title, these roadside marker signs, right? The Cold War. Back in the 1980s, people feared that the United States and the Soviet Union were going to nuke each other, blah, blah, blah. And then there was this eccentric guy and he built the Georgia Guidestones. Just that much context mm. would have been enough, I think, to where people would not have freaked out. Because the assumption, and I've said this many times, this, with the maintain humanity under 500 million thing, without that context, people just jump to the conclusion that, like, I mean, it's basically the, like, the plot of the movie Moonraker. Like, I'm sure you've seen some Bond films, mm-hmm. Ken, over the years. Moonraker, the cheesiest, crappiest of all Bond films. Uh, or to some the best um, <laughs> is all about like you know the Bond villain wants to launch himself into space and then like launch all of these I don't know like some bio attack down on the surface of the earth and it would kill everybody off and it, and it would just be him and however many people left to sort of repopulate the earth um, I guess there's an Aeon Flux episode with a similar plot line he also has, well. a re- he has some really very tidy facial hair that guy doesn't he if i remember right i've, I've got it on blu-ray i watched it again recently <laughs> Moonraker. but he, I met, he's, he's very short has very dark he hair is. and he has a, a mustache beard he has a van gogh i believe doesn't he a, a mustache uh beard combo or is it or is it a full beard anyway i'm i'm, I'm going way off <laughs> i know you're talking about and he's been in a lot and this is going to be like don't try to remember an actor's name in the middle of this recording raymond but here we go again like i can't remember he's been in a lot of stuff that guy not just not just Moonraker. And he's always plays a character like that. Yeah, yeah. Though. Hugo Drax. That's wait, a, is it wait, isn't he the guy in is he the guy in the French connection? He's uh he's he, the actor's name is Michael Lonsdale. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> Michael I think he was maybe he was in the French connection. Maybe I'm just mixing him up, so but um anyway, getting back to the guidestones though, yeah. So this you know I mean, I think to, if you're doing something in 1980, first of all, you probably don't think that they're going to be sitting there looking at this thing in 2022, yeah, right? Because you're going to think the the bombs have gone off already. But I think the idea that that would have that statement would have ended up becoming so out of context, because that was never what back in the day what the rednecks glommed on to before the conspiracy culture got its hooks in the guidestones it was more just like 
a sort of like local superstitious church people kind of like being scared of it and thinking it's the devil. Mm. Right. Because you remember like Stonehenge used to be like, oh, the Druids and all. you remember back in the 90s, mm-hmm. like every the, the word Druid was in like every other sentence, it seemed <laughs> like. So I think that was the original sort of superstition around it. But then later, the conspiracy culture caught on to it and really caught on to that 500 million mm. inscription on it. Yeah, so, which honestly, if we were below 500 million right now, I'd say, oh, that's a great idea. I believe so, they, I think the guide stones turn up in um, in um, Dan Brown's book, actually, at one point. Just reference, they turn up in Inferno, I think it is, which has got, uh, I think the storyline to Inferno is the one that Ron Howard ruined in the movie. Yeah, it is. It's the, it's the one where... Um, there's a virus uh, there's, it's all about population control basically there's a very big uh <clears throat> kind of moral panic of sorts over well i think it's an actual there's a natural scientific worry about it as well isn't there I, and i think this is like a big um sticking point for a lot of conspiracy theorists the uh, population control thing and how it's going to be enacted you know all this kind of stuff but there is a sort of scientific concern isn't there that we actually do have a population problem so and then so the guidestones kind of fed into that which then the conspiracy theorists picked up and you know um so i mean and it was in you know it, it became a big thing in popular culture and dan brown made it the central um sort of point of his book inferno and uh sure yeah it's kind of uh yeah so i can see how the conspiracy theorists especially with that first line the maintain humanity under 500 million i can see why the conspiracy theorists picked up on that particular line <laughs> especially with the, the kind of rhetoric at the time it was uh you know it's all um alex used to talk about it a lot and i think so did david ike i think the two biggies both sure sure they did um and again it's context like all the guy had to do would be like this monument is to have a plaque that said this monument is for those who survived the nuclear war or something just anything yeah but uh you know trying to be clever and it's not like most people have very much practice making their own Stonehenge monument. So, like, you only probably get one go at it, mm. <laughs> is yeah. what I'm thinking. So, but, um, you know, the idea of guiding reproduction wisely, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm for that. I'm for pretty much everything on here. And if, if there was, an, like, some terrible catastrophe and the and the world's population was reduced i i certainly would think it would be a good idea for us to not go to the five to ten billion level again yeah like maybe it's getting a little crowded maybe it is getting a little crowded i don't know yeah so. i think um the other part of that one though i'm just trying to find out i've got the list of them here where is it uh um guide reproduction wisely it's the second one second line that kind of worries me slightly in there which goes a bit um what's the eugenicsy doesn't it improving fitness and diversity with the improving fitness bit in particular <laughs> right it, it seems like a little bit like a robert heinlein not yeah. like the guy's been reading too many robert heinlein novels or something is that right he's the one that wrote about like uh the sci-fi where the characters would like only if you're you're only if your grandparents all four of them live to be 80 could you have kids or something that was ridiculous yeah eugenics um, basically <laughs> so, and it's like yeah. um but, but then he sort of counters it with and diversity which is kind of cool so it's kind of <laughs> it's a really mixed message right. that one but i can see again on the second line why 
why conspiracy theorists again pick that up as well. But, right, you yeah. start getting visions of like Lenny Riefenstahl films when they're talking about the fitness and diversity, right? So, well, or that? at least the fitness part. What's um, the sci-fi film where you can only go to space if you're physically... F- oh, Gattaca. It kind of reminds me of Gattaca a little bit. Do you remember that film with um, uh, Jude Law and uh, Uma Thurman? And uh, okay, yeah. you can only go to space if uh, you're physically fit and uh, of a certain, you know... Um, of a certain program, I believe. And uh, yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of that. But he sort of... Well, of course, that is true in IRL, right? Like to be like an Apollo astronaut, you had to be like a certain height and like you had to a yeah. certain weight. You couldn't be like super big no, no. and be but, an astronaut. So. Maybe maybe I'm misremembering the, <laughs> the plot of Gattaca. No, no, I just, I think I'm, I'm just, I haven't seen Gattaca in a long time, but like I'm just talking about in the real world, like, you do have to currently to go to space. You do have to be a, a bit of a mensch for sure. Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Unless uh, unless Elon sends you up, and then <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> or yeah, unless you're like rich and they just yeah they take you up. It's like that that whoa, never. Let's stop making movie references. This is what happens <laughs> every time I talk to my dad. It's like this. He's, <laughs> like we talk about something in history, and instead of him like responding of something he knows about history he just says oh yeah that's like in the, in the that's like in john wayne the searchers when blah 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 happened i'm like oh god <laughs> read a book yeah. read a book <laughs> okay um so yeah the guidestones are fat to me were fascinating especially as a young broadcaster at the university of georgia back 15 years ago because they were the only really weird thing sort of out in the countryside that you could go see and they were truly weird and they had these they had some stonehenge kind of vibes too because there are certain like slots and holes cut into them that supposedly lined up with the north star and one that would supposedly line up with the rising sun on the solstice or or on the summer and winter solstice i believe and there, so, wasn't there going to be ex- yeah. an extension as well that would um you know, if built, would also have more astrological stuff. There was there was going to be more of it, wasn't there? But there, it was never. Yeah, almost like sort of like a rock garden of little monuments. I think is in the initial designs, all sort of radiating from the main structure. I think was the idea. Um, but I don't. Th- but like everything else with the guidestones, it was sort of like I don't know if he ran out of money or if. You know, they they had really reached the limit of what they could do at that time, but like they did the best they could with it. Like for for instance, the astronomical Stonehengey stuff, right? I'm not sure if it actually worked. Like it was, it's just about impossible. Certainly, I was never able to cite Polaris through the hole in the. T- you know what I mean? Through mm. a hole in a stone. 20 feet up in the air you know what i mean how are you going to see how dark would there would have to be no ambient light at all yeah for you to be able to see that and there's one thing and there was, it's in the book there's one bit where he, um he was going to have a another a part of it where you could see which day of the month and year it was or something based on a, some it wasn't i don't think it was actually in there but I, I think originally that was the plan it was going to be some kind of crazy uh time telling like you know calendar almost Right, right. Yeah, it's it's like some crazy 
70s concept album like it never gets all the things in it that the 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 author intended to be in it sort of like you just get what you get mm-hmm. at the end and that was the guy's stage. it's the same thing with the what they called the mail slot m-a-i-l mail slot um and i went out there one morning on the winter solstice oh it was so cold i remember and tried to sort of like get a shot of the sun, you know, coming through the hole uh, that morning. And like, you know, I'm thinking some, some Raiders of the Lost Ark shit's about to happen. <laughs> nah, not so much. No, no crazy beams of light. And that's what I mean. It was like, it wasn't quite, you know, it, it was intended to be spookier than it was, I guess. <laughs> Might be a good way to put it. So, And the other thing was there was also meant to be a time capsule placed underneath the um guide stone wasn't correct there? oh yeah just the the yeah and that was you know sort of written into the the concept as like a way that the locals could interact with it and you get the school you know it, if you think about it, this is the early 80s there's a lot of time capsules going in the ground mm-hmm. from different elementary school classes at this time on the news and stuff and so yeah, they were going to bury a time capsule there and it was going to be, you know, it would have been a sort of a record of what the people of Elberton were like in that time. And that that was never done. No one ever did that. Mm. And But that was another sort of, sort of weird source of superstition around the monument where people would try to go and dig, thinking, oh, we'll find the time capsule and that'll have the, <laughs> you know, that'll have the Holy Grail or the, uh, you know, the NWO's plan or all written out. Whatever they, yeah, <laughs> whatever they, you know, some Masonic book or like whatever they thought was going to be in there, but the head of Elvon the end, Hubbard. There <laughs> was nothing there, and that, and that's the thing is because there was nothing there. It's just like what this one guy thought, and his own weird beliefs, and then whatever you bring with you, and that's the that's the Georgia Guidestones experience. So let's, let's talk about the book because he wrote a book as well, didn't he? Um, it's like a two hundred and ten page book or something, and. Uh, then gave like a hundred copies to the bank or to some, someone locally. Oh yeah, sent copies to all the members of Congress. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Lever- all, any any press agency he thought he could get. You know, it went around hundreds of copies of it, self published. And what was the kind? Have you read it? What's the uh, what's the? Uh, not since we not since we wrote the book, uh, our book about it. But yeah, common sense renewed, and it just sort of sort of laid out his his own beliefs about, um, you know, his cold war fears of nuclear annihilation, uh, his, his ideas about, um, population diversity, his ideas about, um, just a lot of, you know, just a lot of the different concepts that, and then a lot of him trying to, a lot of him anticipating that evangelical Christians would, somehow think that this was some kind of weird heretical thing. And so he spends a lot of time not trying to, like he couldn't have anticipated the conspiracy culture, I don't think. But he did anticipate the sort of local superstition that the sort of local church ladies would have, as it were. And he tried to anticipate some of that and talk about some of that in his book and really tried to let people know that he was a, uh, that he himself had no beef with Christianity or anything like that. So, uh, it, it, all in all, it's pretty par for the course for a sort of 
late mid to late twentieth century sort of liberal, but you did well in life. The kind of ideas a person like that would have. Mm. And I it, imagine there was like a second edition as well that he published, wasn't there? And it had uh, he basically he said, well the book must have worked because a lot of the stuff he kind of wished for in the initial print had come true, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. So I'm assuming that, yeah. the, uh, you know, the Cold War uh, ended and et cetera. And uh, <laughs> yeah, because it was just after the Berlin Wall came down, wasn't it? So it was, uh, yeah. yeah, so yeah, maybe maybe the book worked. Maybe the Guidestones worked, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> That's Yeah, because of R.C. Christian, we got Glasnost and Perestroika just a few years later. Uh, so. They all read that book. And, so, um, and let's talk a bit about who R.C. Christian might be and what he might be involved with, because that, that's kind of interesting. So we've got, um, let's talk about Rosicrucians. Yeah, yeah. Th- and I think this was one where we thought we would be able to find more than we did to be totally honest with you about Rosicrucians. Like we, as a person who came into it already with sort of that interest in weird stuff, occult esoteric stories, stuff like that. Like I thought, Oh yeah. RC Christian. Maybe that's like Christian Rosenkreutz, right? Sort of the mythical founder, uh, the mythical character in the Rosicrucian, manifestos um and it was we just couldn't make that super direct connection and what made it even more tenuous was that like his he didn't always sign his everything or write his name as rc christian sometimes he would just write his name as robert christian Mm. and it's just like oh man see now like if you're trying to make a point that you're in some kind of american rosicrucian society you're not you're not doing it very hard. No. You're changing up what what your name is. So, but it seemed totally plausible to me that someone with the outlook of that of, of, of whoever RC Christian was, and that they could have easily been in some kind of, um, you know, little fraternity for you know for it's basically for nerds. I mean, if you think about a lot of these fraternities, they're basically for you know. Uh, bookworms, uh, nerds, people like us, Ken, people that may, maybe don't feel at home in normal society, but still want to have a some some kind of brotherhood or religious experience or something like that. But we just couldn't find any evidence of that. Mm. That he that we couldn't even find any evidence that he was a Freemason. You'd think that there would be some free some Freemason symbol on some on any some some of this yeah. somewhere. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that's unusual, isn't it? There's no, it's, there aren't any symbols, are there? It's just text. It's just text, yeah. And it's again, that's what makes me think. Okay, this is like one guy, or like a couple of guys. You know, it's like a guy and his buddies, and and that's great. That to me, that made it a work of art. Mm. Maybe unintentionally, it was a work of art, but it's a work. It was a work of art. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, you know? it's definitely interesting. I mean. So one of the things I noticed in the book as well is that initially the kind of local New Agers sort of took a shine to the to the the Guidestones. Um, in fact, one of them was there on the actual uh, on the actual day of the you know the unveiling, and I believe they did a ritual of some sort. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That night, uh, that, I believe that was uh, Lady Galadriel was her her handle, her pagan name, and. Uh, her name was Jody Minogue, 
and her and her family were sort of Atlanta area pagans and I think they ended up out there that night. I mean, can you imagine if you were uh, a neo-pagan or somebody that had some alt, some kind of alt-religious beliefs and you lived in Georgia in 1980? It's like, mm. there is just not a lot going on. You know what I mean? Like mm. the, uh, the lo- I mean, the church is very powerful here. Yeah. On an, aggre- on an aggregate. I mean, there's there's way more churches than there are. Starbucks or McDonald's or, or whatever you think there are a lot of in America. There's way more at this part of the country. There's way more churches. So, and because it's the South and just because of human nature, a lot of superstition as well. So, um, you know, some of us may chuckle at, at, at having a nom de plume like Lady Galadriel, but she was very brave in her time. People like that were very brave in their time and yeah. they were, you know, Having that little bit of that easy rider experience where the the culture around you kind of rejects you. And so I can imagine having something like the Georgia Guidestones going up. See, it would be that's like a miracle <laughs> to somebody <laughs> like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I think, just to have anything like that. I think the you know, the the thing that you I always kind of connect to the New Ages as well is the kind of the ley lines. And I've, I think there's some ley line connection as well, isn't there, with the and no, the other thing was the sevens, wasn't it? There was a lot of sevens involved with. Um, oh, with, the triple seven ranch is across the street, and it's on Highway Georgia Highway seventy seven, and yeah, there were a lot of sevens. Yeah, Every, so, I love seven. I mean, how can you not? It's a great number. It is a great number. Good film as well. Uh, but anyway, oh yeah, yeah David Fincher. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So here we go. See, this is like. <laughs> The, the longer we go, eventually it just stops being the occult podcast and becomes Ken and Raymond re- review the movies. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's the problem when you have friends on as guests. It's, you know, we just go off on, on tangents. But the, okay, so let's start talking about, I mean, the earliest I could find of a conspiracy theorist picking up the Georgia Guidestones, and I actually found it today on YouTube, was William Cooper. Um, I'm sure it probably happened before that, uh, maybe in text, but the first kind of uh, big name conspiracy theorist does appear to be William Cooper. And he, uh, um, at the beginning of the show, if I can be bothered, I'll put a clip. There's a really good clip of William Cooper um, sort of introducing his theory about the, the, the Guidestones. But what was the kind of the parlance as it were of the uh, conspiracy theorists in general when it came to the when it came to the uh, Georgia Guidestones what was it they what did they think it was well going back to that moonraker thing right so they're thinking there's a sort of bond villain force out there going to kill everybody off and then only you know Elon Musk and and Bill Gates are left to populate the earth i don't know uh, it that you see you add that which is really fantastical right it's like again it's like something out of fiction and you add that to their already existing notions that there are um sort of forces above the level of the nation state that are sort of shadowy groups of people that are controlling you know every what it goes on uh in the world and um so that back in those days, it would have been things like the Trilateral Commission or the, uh, the maybe a little later the Bilderberg Group or these sort of different 
elite working groups, think tanks and things like that. They, they became sort of like boogeymen. And then also there was the sort of pre-existing element from generations before where this was basically also the same conspiracy theory that drove uh, anti-Semitism in the early 20th century. So many of these types of conspiracy theories, uh, it would be the same story, uh, but instead of saying it's the Jews doing everything, now it's the New World Order, the global elite. The globalists. I think you have the to globalists. say yeah, You have to say it. Like Alex, that's a good Alex Jones thing. I, <laughs> I caught that. That's good. Yeah. So, Globalist yeah. scum. Yeah. Right. That's, that was – so – and that was also funny to me that they that they th- would look at the Georgia Guidestones and somehow connect that to the quote unquote globalists or to the people that they thought were at the top of the pyramid or whatever because like like people like that don't usually like write their plan on a bunch of stones in East Georgia that only local yokels drive past. You know what I mean? It's like uh, I, but again, context, right? Context and worldview. People, people take facts and or take things that they see, and then they sort of have to interpret it to fit their pre-existing worldview. It's very rare that they're going to be like, hmm, you know. Yeah. So. So that's uh, that's why I like. Go ahead. Uh, let's let's fast forward very slightly because yeah. we've we've got. We've got uh, it's a bit of a melting pot, isn't it? When you think about it, really, you've got kind of conspiracy theorists talking about it. We've got um, you know the local New Age community talking about it. You've got uh, you know podcasters like us talking about it, um, and then you've got a very big church presence in the area, um, and that's 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 a, a powder keg, you know, in the making, isn't it? Really, I would say. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think the more well known they well known they became, the more well known the Georgia Guidestones became, the bigger the problem got. So, and for me, I think that's been. And forgive me if I'm not totally answering your question here, but like, for me, that's been the arc of it on a personal level as an artist. For me, with the Guidestones, was that. At first, it was something that I saw that no one else knew about, hardly. Like you said, William Cooper maybe had written about it a little bit, or you, or, or his, or his co-author, the Xerox Machine, perhaps. <laughs> um, or the, the BBS, but, the BBS networks of of old. <laughs> that's right, right. Um, we can get the Cooper in a little bit, but I, but for me, it was a thing where that well, when we first went there and we were just starting to do out there, and just starting to do this our show nobody had heard of it and then we did the show and then a few you know four or five years later uh you know like a history channel show decided that they wanted to do a piece on it that was brad Meltzer's decoded uh which is a very like if a very history channel format kind of show by the way it's it's funny um and just having done the podcast like there was so little out there about the georgia guidestones in the media that just having done that podcast 
uh, which, you know, was not, you know, probably downloaded 20 or 30,000 times at the most, like not a, not a lot of times. Uh, just that was enough that I got invited on that show. And then right around that time, I, I, I got a number of media inquiries. People wanted to talk about it. And I was, like I said earlier, I was a publishing company stooge at the time. So I was, you know, I hit up my publisher. I was like, Hey, it's clearly we need to do a book. And that was sort of how the book came along. So for me, like, when the world discovered the Georgia Guidestones, they discovered me a little bit, mm-hmm. just a little bit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that you know that was that was great for me on a personal level, but it also kind of brought me to a crisis point with conspiracy theories as a genre, and it started to make me think because of the, what I was seeing around the guidestones and the sort of the vandalism and the way people were talking about it. Like it just made me think of like, this is going in a bad direction. Yeah. Just like conspiracy theory in general. I mean, let's talk a bit about that because I think, um, I mean, we, I touched like, I touched on this with Joseph Maffini. I touched on it a little bit with Adam go rightly as well. But the thing that really fascinates me is like, when I think of conspiracy theory, like old conspiracy theory, like, I think about the kind of BBS movement, you know, back in the day where, you know, documents were being passed around. I think of like UFOs, the X-Files, and it was kind of a subculture. It was kind of a small subculture of kind of weirdos that were kind of also reading William Gibson books and kind of, you know, uh, you know, web users, which was a rare thing back then. You know, um, it was kind of, it was kind of a, almost a new age thing, almost. It was like a weird cyber new age thing. And then it went, sideways as far as i can sure it was a version of that i'm from i don't know like i think from a sociological perspective if i want to be huffy and puffy about it i'd say largely it was a men's movement in much the same way neo-paganism at that time was largely a women's movement surely there were plenty of men in paganism at the time there were plenty of women reading conspiracy stuff but by and large i mean there was a strong element of like, this is a subculture for you if you are like a nerdy white dude in your basement. Like your prob this is this is something, <laughs> and I don't mean this in a bad way, but like this is maybe like a lot of sci-fi or like a lot of other things, similar genres. Maybe it's like an escape for people who need a little bit of escape in their life. Yeah. I always say it, that, it's- that's what it was for me. Certainly. I was a nerd. I was picked on. You know what I mean? I wasn't. I always think it it fulfilled the same function as religion in a way, and it still does to a degree. It's you know, religion, you could argue, is there to kind of explain away chaos in the universe, and you know, so you, if something you know an avalanche happens, it's God's will, or if uh, you know your cat dies, it's it's all part of God's plan. Whereas with conspiracy theory, if you don't have religion, you have conspiracy theory where you know, the chaos is explained away because it was the Illuminati that did it, you know. Right, it's all yeah. Satan's plan. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. It's like inverted. Yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely. So I, feel, I always feel that, like, yeah, it was always going to go dark eventually, I think, like like it has. Um, but it's kind of sad, man. I, I, I kind of miss the old days. <laughs> I, I, do, I do too. You know, we recently cut an episode of Retrophilia, which is a series that I'm currently doing about the 1990s, and it was... The episode was titled, When Conspiracy Theories Were Fun. 
and we we talked about just sort of these things about uh, how much fun you had, especially watching those first couple of seasons of the X Files when it wasn't such a huge phenomenon yet. I mean, it was always popular, but like just like feeling like you really tapped it. I mean, though, even though it's on like Friday night at nine, like on, on Fox, like it didn't matter. Like it was great. Um, and the, the UFO thing, like as another one where like, it was a lot of, it was just a lot of fun back then. And this stuff is not fun now. And, um, I have a lot of, I, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Can I, you know, yeah. depends on how deep you want to go, you know? Oh, that's good. So, deep. Because <laughs> this is a okay. this is a topic very I've been thinking about a lot. It's it's sort of something I think about because I why I think about is where is it going? That's the other thing, you know. Like because it's it's the the biggest thing to me is that conspiracy theory went mainstream, and that that was the weirdest thing seeing that happen with QAnon. Because um, QAnon, if you look at I mean people like us, we we know the kind of history of conspiracy theory, and if you look at QAnon you can quite clearly see where all the different ideas came from you know it's like this cat it's like it's like a digest isn't it of uh, of of old conspiracy theories sort yes. of like yeah and and it's just a matter of rolling it out to a receptive audience and no i think that's the, there's a sort of psychological trick to it i've almost feel like that like you know people make these arguments that like advertising agencies like have grokked psychology to the point where they're just really manipulating you in an almost hypnotic way with commercials and things like this. And you don't even realize it. I think that's what's happened on a political level mm-hmm. and on a intelligence and propaganda level. Yeah. It's kind of what William think, Gibson was warning about in the nineties. Yes. Basically. <laughs> um, if you want, do you want the most cynical version of this? Yeah, go on. This most, the most cynical version of this is, um, <clears throat> that elements of Russian intelligence have realized that Americans are a bunch of dupes <laughs> and that they can fool us into thinking any old bullshit because of our already existing beliefs where we believed a bunch of shit without any evidence just because it suited us. And so they are exploiting the hell out of that and have been, I mean, for 10 or 15 years and, uh, you know, the onset of this war in Ukraine might have slowed it down a little bit. But like, and now it's just getting picked up by all sorts of other bad actors who are using the same techniques. And it's always the same group of people that they are trying to call to action. Yeah. And it's it's my neighbors here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I live in a... Uh, I live in the biggest Republican, suburban Republican stronghold in the one of the reddest states in the country. You know what I mean? Well, I guess we're a swing state now, but <clears throat> I mean, it's sort of like the home of it's like where Newt Gingrich came from is where I live. And so seeing this around me is cre- it's creepy because especially when you think about QAnon and I know QAnon is not quite as popular as it might have been a couple of, of years ago. But, here, Ken, here's what creeped me out about QAnon and looking at, like, where some of that came from, was that the one thing that they kept talking about, especially when um, uh, Trump was still the president, was that, that one day Trump was going to arrest hundreds of people at the same time and round up all the Democrats in Congress and in this place and in that place and throw them all in jail. 
Mm. And what that made me think was like, oh, yeah, if I'm like an intelligence agent and I'm trying to completely destabilize this country that I see as my global rival, that's exactly the message. Like, And if you think about where, where does that come from? Like the mind that thought that up is a person who looks at something like Kristallnacht or the Night of the Long Knives or these other germ sort of bits of pre-war German history, and they think, that's our model. Mm. That's what I saw in that. Yeah. Like, shit, these people literally want there to be a, fa- a violent fascist takeover of the United States. That's what they want. And it, the weird thing was how easily that that meal went down the throats of so many Americans, wasn't it? It was that was the scary part of it. You know, the the fact that you saw what was essentially a meme become this really powerful thing and it was that was to me that was the other scary thing was the way and and it was the, the way that they were using the language of the kind of 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 the left in some ways. Do you know what I mean? They were using meme magic. Things that were, you know, absolutely, absolutely, you, yeah, things- and, and they still do that because, whereas the left, because you know, the left were the early adopters, right? Yeah, on the me on all that, and so you've got a, you've got one group of one cultural large cultural cohort that adopted this stuff in say the mid aughts, right? And so they've had all this time to sort of like inoculate themselves from some of the badness in social media, right? And then you have another group of people who didn't adopt social media until they got a smartphone. And in, in a lot of these cases, these are people that never had a personal computer. And I mean that, Ken. Like, these are all... we have, You have a lot of boomer-age adults. I'm not trying to be like, okay, boomer about this, but you have a lot of boomer-age adults that do not know how to use a mouse or a keyboard, and they never were on the internet... Until their adult child downloaded a Facebook app for them and said, "Here you go. Here's how you see the pictures of your grandkids." Mm-hmm. Oh, they all got iPhones. That's the other thing, you know. The, That's what I'm talking about. They got yeah. an iPhone. They got a smartphone. The first time we're going to put you on Facebook now, because we don't. So I don't have to teach you how to use Windows and a mouse and a keyboard now. All I have to do is tell you push that, and you will see pictures of your grandkids, and that's going to make soccer mom's life easier, right? No offense, but like, and so that's the environment that a lot of, especially President, Tr- former President Trump's generation, has encountered an information revolution that we have been, that you and I have been part of for thirty years, and they're they're getting it all at once, and and a lot of these people, especially here in the South. Um, they come from a religious background where their outlook on religious texts is that they are inerrant. So you have a lot of people who, uh, Christians here in this area, who, especially Baptists and evangelicals, who um, just what is right and wrong is just what has been told to them, right? This is, you know, the Bible is just inerrantly true. And you don't go off of that. And so all the answers are right. They're easy in front of you. And since you're told to never question that and you just accept that, the only decision that you had to make was, do I trust the preacher in that moment you accept it? And that's exactly where we are with Fox News and QAnon and social media for all these people. It's like they don't really have a filter 
for sources of information. So if something's kind of telling them what they're already afraid of, or they're already suspecting, they're going to buy it. Mm. And I've seen this has happened to my own fa- a lot of people in my own family. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, Me too. it's depressing. Yeah, it's even hit here as well. I mean, oh. <laughs> I always tell this story because it, it makes me laugh every time. <clears throat> I was at the, I go to the gym, believe it or not, um, and uh, there's a guy I know there that helps me do my weights. Uh, you know, he teaches me different techniques and stuff. Normal guy, you know, um, out of nowhere, this guy, this guy who you wouldn't expect. I mean, you wouldn't expect this guy to, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, I haven't been a bit rude, but you wouldn't expect the guy to like do more than probably lift weights go to the pub etc but he comes up to me one day and he goes uh ken do you believe we live on a globe and i'm like oh no oh no oh no <laughs> and then uh so i'm like oh god okay humor him humor him he you know he's a nice guy um and he's been helping me at the gym whatever so he gives me a load of youtube links to watch and it's i, I already know about these youtube links we covered them on ccn like 10 years ago or whatever and uh i was like okay okay and I, I, you know i'm sort of kept you know had a conversation with him about it and then over covid all of a sudden you know he's uh he's got a q patch on next time i see him and you know and i keep seeing these around england now as well so you know this it's not gone anywhere and it's just waiting to be reactivated that's the thing that's really scary about it it's like it was like an unstoppable machine during Trump's era, especially towards the end. It was this weird, it was almost like a virus taking over so many different things. And then it's a cult. Ken. Yeah. It's yeah. A cult. Yeah. We can talk about that more. Please go on. Yeah. But yeah. And, and at the moment it feels like it's slightly dormant. It's still there. And the people are all still kind of, you know, talking about it, but because this is the thing that changed. This is the thing I was talking to Andrew and go rightly about previously with conspiracy theorists, it was always against the government. It was always, you know, the, it was, uh, even Alex Jones, I mean, he got arrested for, you know, for um, protesting George Bush and things like that. You know, it was it was it was always anti-government, anti, and it didn't matter which side. You know, it wasn't you know Democrats or Republicans. It didn't matter. There was, was plenty it, to go around. Yeah, There's always plenty to go around. Yeah, yeah, and but this time, the government was the figure. You know, the the leader of the free world, Trump, was was the kind of messiah of this cult. You know, the uh, the 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 you know the the Jesus as it were the one that was going to lead them to freedom the to the promised land and that was sure. scary as hell sure. as well that's that that is it is still there yeah. i mean you know as we're we're recording this on august 10th 2022 so just i mean american news just a day or two ago they um the fbi like searched the former president's house and the, that has activated a lot of these people and they didn't even they didn't arrest him they didn't charge him with anything they just searched his house and uh, i mean that is an unprecedented huge thing for the fbi to do i mean the fbi director and the attorney general will literally lose their jobs if nothing comes of this cuz it's that big but like no one's saying that he's going to jail or anything and already people gathering around his house and that's that's creepy. And then this cult thing can um, it scares me especially because I know that it, I believe that almost everyone is susceptible to being brainwashed by cults if they're not careful. And I know this because it's happened to me multiple times in my life. I became a bit of a cultist for uh, the evangelical youth group I was in 
in high school. And then I had to have a sort of like identity breakdown and figure out who I really was and get away from that. It, now, it wasn't abusive in the way like if I had been at the Church of Scientology or something, it would have been abusive. But I had fallen into that true believer cult mentality and I was on a crusade. You know, I wanted to convert people. And then later when I was doing out there radio for uh, that we were talking about earlier, my first big radio show that I did, um, there was a time for a couple of months there where I became a true believer in 9-11 conspiracy theories. And that took a while to kind of for me to kind of move on and then later to really come to my senses about it. And um, so I see this, these things all over the place. And I'll tell you, when I was in, and I'll try to be brief about this, when I was in that 9-11 truther cult moment, the person that I was most interested in was not Alex Jones. It was a guy named, a guy named Webster Tarpley. And I was just so into his radio show and his uh, book about 9-11 conspiracy theories and everything. And I had even been on his show briefly. Um, and as time went on, like I found out like a little bit more about the guy. And I realized, oh, this guy used to be in the Lyndon LaRouche cult. He, in fact, used to be like the, the number two or the number three guy in the Lyndon LaRouche cult. And um, I think a lot of the language he was still using on the show, a lot of that smart language, that intellectual sounding language that was attracting me so much was coming directly from that Lyndon LaRouche sort of cult language. And I, as the years went on, especially as I got away from the 9-11 conspiracy stuff and was sort of trying to take stock of it, I would, I sort of read more about Lyndon LaRouche and the concept that he was like a political cult leader and the sort of things people would do around him. And I was very, and I, this is like 10 years ago, I was super fascinated by the idea that a cult leader could not be a religious leader so much or not be preaching a religious message, but that he would actually be a, a political leader. And I can remember thinking back 10 years ago, oh man, like, I'm glad I'm glad uh, Ron Paul is not doing very well in these Republican primaries, you know. I'm like I'm glad like that that <clears throat> I'm glad that Alex Jones isn't more popular than he is because what will come after this? Well, you know, like what if Lyndon LaRouche had been way more popular? He'd be Donald Trump. Yeah. And and that has just been that does not sit well with me for the well, future of our country. And we just found out it a few did. days ago that Alex Jones makes $256 million a year now nowadays. So, you know, that, that's scary as well. <laughs> it me. is. It is. Now, well, now, just to put that number in perspective, that is not how much he makes a year. That is like the high-end estimate that the person that was charged by the court with figuring, with valuing his business – Right, and this is a very experienced person who had valued other business, major corporations, in different suits and mergers and things. He had valued Infowars and the whole Alex Jones enterprise as being as being worth somewhere between like a hundred and two hundred and fifty million dollars. Mm. Um, but it has certainly taken Alex years to build up that much money. Now he's made millions this year already, probably about twenty million dollars already this year. Um, so. 
it does speak to how popular he became, which really kind of is weird to me because I can remember when the when he did a, he did a movie called Endgame Blueprint for Global Enslavement. Yeah, it's I a remember bit of that over the top title. I remember that. Um, <laughs> and I remember watching this film and thinking, okay, he's gone as far as he can go. Like he's completely jumped the shark in every way. There's no, there's nowhere else to take the conspiracy genre as it has been. Like he just went right over the, over the shark on that. And, and it was after that, that he became more involved in politics and more involved in the sort of right wing. And what's interesting is uh, this kind of brings us back around to the, the Guidestones as well, because he also became a lot more Christian and a lot. Correct. Um, and that, that was something really interesting. Like, even, I mean, he used to, you know, bring up religion a little bit in the early. St- I mean, I remember in the Bilderberg film, I think he mentions Christianity a little bit, but it became a real, you know, thing for him, didn't it? It became. It was always that's really what ended up separating him from David Icke, and um, you know, it was the kind of political right wing stuff, and and more impo- and more so the Christian stuff. I'd say with uh, right. He, I think he courted that, and I think, um, I, I think it's. From in my mind, living here, hard to separate those things. Mm. That by and large, the people that are, um, that have these conspiracy theory beliefs, uh, uh, there's a huge overlap. The Venn diagram is, you know, it's it's very close. the The section in the middle is very big between evangelicals and current conspiracy culture, and I think I think the. It's it's a question of epistemology. Like, do you have the necessary tools to process this the amount of information that comes out at an American or at a Western person in the early twenty twenty first century, or were those tools intentionally destroyed when you were a child or when you were a teenager to make sure you would never question the church or never question your religious beliefs? And I think that's that's sort of where we're at. We have a lot of people that have just completely hobbled themselves from an epistemological level. And of, so, of course, they reject science. And, you know, of course, they I mean, they're even rejecting democracy. And I think that's that's the worst part of it to me mm. is the rejection of democracy in it. Yeah. Yeah. That is the worry. Anyway. But yeah, so. So let's let's uh, bring it back round to the the guide stones and uh, yeah. So we've got this powder keg. We've got the rise of uh, you know Alex Jones and QAnon, uh, and then a few weeks ago, what happens? Oh, like we said at the beginning, they got blowed up. Yep, uh, and literally bombed. And it's this major case here in Georgia. The local authorities are searching for the bomber. Uh, there's been some video of it released and this came right on the heels of two Guidestones related things happening in the media landscape. One was that we had a fringe conspiracy theorist candidate for governor here in Georgia. So her name was Candace Taylor. Uh, she ran in the Republican primary to be, to be the governor and she's, you know, like eight people ran or something, and she she ran she scored fifth or sixth amongst eight, right? Um, she only got like forty thousand votes, so it's not like she's a major political figure in any way in Georgia. Um, but her campaign was just total, 
you know, uh, conspiracy stuff. And one of her big platforms was that she wanted to destroy the Georgia Guidestones. Like that was, and she got, again, she got 40,000 votes. So, so she threw her sort of nutty primary campaign for governor that went nowhere. She got national attention just by being so nutty. And then that led to, um, uh, John Oliver, right, doing a whole long-form segment about her on his show. And I think, and it was just a few weeks later that the Godstones were blown up. So, uh, you know, a lot of eyes had been on the Godstones yeah. at the time, right before that. And I think that, I'm not saying, oh, John Oliver shouldn't have done his show or anything like that. Come on. But, like... You can tell, like there was a build-up. This wasn't out of nowhere. No, and I think that. But the weird thing was that was kind of like the narrative, wasn't it? That the media put out was that it was just out of nowhere. It was like you know, ooh, who blew, who blow these stones up? And to me, it was. I'm pretty sure I know the type of person that blew those stones up, just because because we've been all following the narrative of these people for so long, and it's 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 the kind of we've been talking about them the whole episode now. Yeah. <laughs> we've been talking about them for an hour. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean, I don't want to say I know for sure because I don't. I mean, if I knew, if I knew, I'd be on the phone with the GBI collecting that reward. I'm sure, and I would love to do so. Uh, but uh, you kind of, yeah. I mean, who other, what other kind of person would do that? It's not a disgruntled granite worker. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's it's not some stockbroker that got depressed, okay? Like, um, yeah. Okay, well, in, in your words, Ken, describe this person to me that you, like, just, who is this, what or what kind of person is the person that you think blew up the Georgia Guidestones? I imagine it's someone with uh, 4chan bookmarked on their website with, that has probably an... Um, unwieldy amount of uh, Infowars supplements uh, <laughs> um, probably also has quite a lot of Christian iconography around their house um, yeah something like that <laughs> fair enough fair enough now I don't want to throw the, the Christians as I call them because I don't consider myself a Christian so I'll call them the Christians I don't want to throw the Christians under the bus here No, but yeah I mean Having the having the sort of devil part of it adds uh, a lot more spice, mm-hmm. you know, to the mix. Um, when you think it's both the New World Order and the devil at the same time. But anybody that grew up in this area pe- knows that people are so suspicious. And maybe this is a worldwide thing. Maybe this is just what I saw. But like people in the area I grew up in. In my own family, in many cases, suspicious, um, superstitious. There's definitely an element of superstition in different parts of the United States, and um, I think that really plays into it. Yeah, so um, I'm, I imagine it's like a, it's it's like the guy who um, went to the pizza shop. You know, it's that same kind of mentality. You know, it's someone that's uh, got themselves very wound up. Um you know, through various means and is actually gone out and enacted, you know, the very thing. Yes. Yeah. That's the kind of person I see it as, yeah. you know, it's like the Pizzagate guy, you know, it's the, um, it's the, yeah, it's the guy that actually really believes it and really wants to do something about it and does something about it. And I think that's the, 
that's who I see in my mind. You know, it's the, um, yeah, that's, that's who I see. I agree. I agree. But there's one other element of this is that the person that did this, and this is what makes it very, very serious, is that the person that did this built an explosive device to do it with. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, and, was, and and hunked it in. I mean, literally, it's like he's charging the bunker in World War Two or something. That's about all you see on the videos. The guy just runs in, throws it down, runs back out. They got a little footage of the guy going out. I, and this pisses me off because they've had they they could have had good cameras there, like they should have thought about this. Like, oh, if if we're trying to use these cameras to get, capture someone who is just who I think in their minds would have just been vandalizing the monument, not blowing it up with a bomb. You at least want to be able to see who their face was, and you you really don't get much from the video. But yeah, the fact that they built a, a bomb is what's really scary because where would that have, where would that bomb have gone if it had not gone to the Georgia Guidestones? You know what I mean? I mean, I don't want to, I mean, I'm, I'm that's speculation, but that's, it's creepy. Like, was this a person that if they hadn't have done this, they would have done some mass shooting or some shit? Like, cause it's the same kind of people. It's the same mentality. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's a, it's kind of a sad ending as well, isn't it? To the, to the stones as well. It's kind of, you know you had this fun again it's like it's like we were talking about before it's the same thing it's like it starts off as this kind of cool kind of subcultural thing almost you know where um you know you've got these mysterious stones as a mystery there it's kind of fun and then it ends in this really dark way connected probably connected to you know one of the darkest movements in history <laughs> in my opinion um i agree know, with you yeah and and, it, and it, uh, what i fear is that they are a harbinger of things to come yeah yeah that's the you other. know that this is just that this is just going to get worse and to be you know to be honest with you ken i don't think i'm going to be living here in the in the south mm. for very much longer if yeah. i had to guess yeah. Like I think it may be t- it may be time to <laughs> look for greener pastures, you know. Shuffle off the buffalo, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Going west uh, on the old cattle train. But I've, another the, thing, the covered wagons. Another thing that's really interested me, and I'm not sure if it. I, I think it's been labelled as one thing, but I don't necessarily think it's the same thing, and that's this kind of rise of the new satanic panic where people are calling it the satanic panic, but I, I think it's a different thing this time. Whereas before I think it was this kind of, um, this kind of moral panic, wasn't it? Whereas now it feels more like it's just attached to, you know, it's just attached to what we've been talking about, isn't it? It's, it's, um, it's just a, I can't really explain what I mean. It's, it's not, it doesn't have that same kind of like, um, you know, coming up through children kind of thing. Like it was before it was like, you know, the original satanic panic was all about, uh social workers you know and kind of you know misinterpretation of of things and and a kind of christian um input whereas this time it feels like just an extension of the QAnon thing would you agree with that yeah i would i would agree with that i mean there's still the 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 child element to it um but it's it's sort of taking a different path i mean obviously the pizzagate stuff that that's surrounds children and then uh but how do i put this like no maybe i don't agree with you kim because i think a lot of this goes back to people who like conservative parents and grandparents and their fears of a changing culture but it didn't have 
yeah. the original satanic panic didn't have a political side to it it was a it was a religious thing wasn't it i mean now we know in their minds they know who the um the satanists are it, that's the different thing oh here. yeah yeah so, so that it's attached to hillary clinton for example or it's attached to you know um you know to democrats or you know, it's, it wasn't that way the, the first time around. It wasn't uh, Democrats that were doing this. It was a shadowy occult kind of group, wasn't it? Whereas- sure, sure. Well, there was a little bit of that actually back in the 80s. Again, just playing devil's advocate a little bit where you would have these, uh, I can't remember what her name was, but she was this woman and like, you know, they had used like hypnotic regression and she had remembered all of these, you know, Bob Hope sex parties and all this stuff where all the big the big wigs and the big politicians and the big Hollywood figures were a bunch of were in some sort of satanic sex cult or something. So, I mean, there was a little bit of that, but you're right. Like there wasn't like it wasn't like, oh, yeah, there are Satanists at the McMartin preschool and they're being run by the local Democratic Party. You know what I mean? I mean, th- there's definitely an element of that. Uh, now and it, it it is a you know I mean it does have those witch hunt elements to it, doesn't it? It does, and then I think the other thing that kind of bolstered it was the Epstein stuff, wasn't it? I mean, I think that was the you know because you know that's one of the things they've always been saying these kind of these dark what I call like dark side conspiracy theorists is that you know um, I mean even David Icke's been saying it for years it, you know there's these elites and they're all out there uh, you know uh, molesting children or you know you know, getting endochrome or whatever the, uh, the the flavor of the month is. Um, but then when you have this big event where, oh shit, this elite guy actually is caught doing it, um, then it kind of, it adds a kind of weight to their argument, doesn't it, a little bit? They're, they're a right for once, <laughs> almost. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we got that one. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think that was, and I think that's why people are, were very, are very desperate to really make something even more out of a very big case which which was obviously the epstein case was a big criminal case but i think the urge to for it to be linked to some greater thing i mean i think that's that's what, kind of where where we get that worldview problem right and but the th- funny thing to me about that is is like everybody knows that the biggest swinger dude in the american political landscape is is roger stone who is just, you know, who not not a year and a half ago is sitting there trying to plan a, basically a fascist coup in the United States, like one of their heroes, you know? So, and then it comes out this week, you know, Alex Jones' text messages, right, accidentally get leaked. And Alex Jones is sending naked pictures of his wife to Roger Stone. And it's like, I thought you, y'all were uh, trying to stop the, the sex abusers. <laughs> <laughs> whatever and um but you know that's i think part of that too is like you play in on the sort of this sort of sexual horror that superstitious people have and that very religious people have because remember if, like if you're super religious then like re- sexuality is on lockdown and everything around sexuality is something to be afraid of in a lot of cases and so adding that sexual element to it um really juices it up. I mean, we call that, when I was a publishing company, I would call that sexing it up. You know, don't sex it up too much. Then you come across like sounding like an idiot, right? Because if you add too much of the, um, the fantastic 
to what you're saying, then uh, you be- you can become a demagogue and you become a liar and all this. But if you don't add enough, then you know you might be like me and your book only sells a few thousand copies <laughs> instead <laughs> of fifty thousand or a million or something. So, um, and that I think was uh, the 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 tough thing about writing about the Georgia Guidestones to kind of come back around was that it was so interesting to us on so many levels. Um, and we thought, oh, there's every element here of a just a awesome story, an interesting tale. And to us, that was plenty. And I think to a lot of people, you would, because I've done a lot of radio interviews about this over the years, you, you'd talk to people and they'll, they're expecting more. They're expecting you to really put a bikini on it, you know, as well as tell you about it. And, um, that's tough. Anyway, I feel like I'm rambling. Sorry, Ken. <laughs> That's okay. I always said, like to say when I'm talking to people about conspiracy theories, though, that this is one thing that people don't <clears throat> necessarily, you know, that, that they should think about when they, if they're into conspiracy theories and they're listening to this, is that it only takes a conspiracy theorist to be right once or twice for them to look like they're telling the truth uh, or that they're right about what they're saying. And, um, you know, Mark, my co-host and I always talk about this, you know, they can have 50 theories, but if only, and you know, if only two of them come true, that's enough for most people, you know, they've got two out of 50, right. Therefore everything's right. And I think if you think about how ridiculous that actually is, then you might start to reevaluate, um, you know, your beliefs slightly that's the that's kind of because i like yourself i got into the 9-11 thing as well and it was that it was actually i sat there thinking about it i was like hang on a minute only a couple of these actual theories turned out to be true you know but why am i believing the other 48 you know and i think that's what you need to think about you need to think and, and why do you need 48 theories yeah because, and this, this is why 9-11 is the dumbest conspiracy theory ever they ran a plane into the building like if that ain't enough to bring your building down, you know what I mean? And and the whole thing had to revolve around that argument, convincing you that running a jet airliner at 600 miles an hour into the side of a building wouldn't fatally compromise a building. Like that was the whole thing around the 9-11 thing. And what really also started bothering me was that I would look around and the only people in the world that seemed to – agree with me when I was a conspiracy theorist about 9-11 were like Iranians. You know what I mean? And like North Korea and stuff like that. And that's, um, I started looking around and being like, man, like this, this don't feel right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's basically um, what happened with me. And you sort of, yeah, I, I, I mean, I could go on about this rages as well, but <laughs> we're probably going to ramble a lot. So let's, Okay, so I think let's talk about let's talk about the nineties. Let's talk about your podcast, your uh, your new show. Oh, thank you so much for asking about it. <laughs> and well, we're about a year in now, so it's not quite as new as it was. But it's called Retrophilia, and it's about the nineteen nineties. And my co-host Audra Wolfman, she's uh, just w- a wonderful broadcaster, a really smart, excellent. Um, and a lot of stage presence. I've been so happy to work with her on this project. And she's brought so much to the table and taught me so much about the 90s. And the dynamic here is like I graduated in the year 2000. So I'm like a bi-hoil millennial, right? Just exactly the definition of, of a millennial. And she graduated 
high school. I think it was in 94. So she's in high school in the early 90s. I'm in high school in the late 90s. And then in the early 90s, I'm a child. Or, uh, in the late 90s, she's a young adult. So we have, she's she's a Gen Xer, I'm a millennial. So we have this great vibe of having different memories of the 90s. And we always try at least a little bit in every show to get something of the personal in it to where people who've been listening for, to us for a long time or are interested in us as personalities and as broadcasters kind of get a little idea of what our lives were like at that time. But in general, we talk about different um, things that were interesting to us and definitive to us about the 1990s. And it's, I think, a lot different from the kinds of shows maybe other people do uh, in the nostalgia genre right now. At least I hope it is. Yeah, the 90s, man. I mean, I I remember them. I'm I'm probably the same age as your co-host, it sounds like, because I also graduated. So, yeah, so she's probably got the same context as me so she probably remembers the smashing pumpkins <laughs> properly <laughs> sure yeah and not just when they became giant stars or whatever yeah uh, for her she was more into uh, punk and goth and things like that in a sort of early sense we have that in common too is that we were both goth kids but we were goth kids in different eras oh, so we have sort of you know you were if about, you ask me about like goth stuff, I'd be like, "Oh yeah, I love Nine Inch Nails," and she, that's not something she would mention. She'd be like, "Yeah, I like Susie and the Banshees," you know, yeah, yeah, for yeah. instance. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I, I'm loving that dynamic, and it does play out as a sociologist would guess. Like, I'm a little bit more uh, positive. Even it sounds like I've been negative for an hour and a half on this interview, but like I'm pretty usually the one that likes things more. And I think that may be a little bit of that millennial mindset. Um, and she's she's usually got to remind me, hey, you know, it, it wasn't all <laughs> it wasn't all rainbows and roses and slap bracelets, you know. Oh yeah, she's the so, she's the same as me. She's the William Gibson era, where everything's like uh, being destroyed by by corporations and by uh, capitalism. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, it, yeah. it always yeah, yeah. it always comes back around to everything's being destroyed by capitalism, which you yeah. know, fair. Anyway, thanks, man. Thanks for coming uh, back on the show. It's been good, good to have you on. Um, I'm I'm loving the vibe on the new the new sitting now episodes. It's great. It's less clipped. So, we've we've definitely chilled out in our old age on the show. <laughs> tell me, me too, man. I'm sorry to the audience. I didn't have any like secret handshakes or or, or Latin incantations to share. But you know, maybe on retrophilia, you check that out. Maybe I'll throw a few in there. Backwards masking. So.